As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, the plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to four to six A and B, your Ohio State podcast on the Athletic. Bill Landis joined as always by Ari Wasserman, coming to you for the second time this week because we are in official preseason mode. Two shows a week. Probably coming at you most likely Mondays and Thursdays. Thursday's show will be what this one is going to be, a subscriber mailbag. If you would like to be someone who submits a question for us to answer, theathletic.com slash 4-6 gets you $1 per month for an annual subscription, and you get to ask us questions. Any question. There's nothing off topic. These are all football questions. It just happen to work out that way this week. We'll answer anything. I think we've proven that to this point in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, especially food-related. Yeah, yeah. I was a little. You know, there's no food question here, and you know, I thought I thought the people knew us a little bit. Maybe that's them telling us that they don't want us to talk about food anymore. I hope not, because if it is, then I'm going to resign from the podcast. Yeah, it's a major part of my life. So uh, please <laughs> leave a food question um, every now and then. Uh, we'll also take questions from the Apple five star reviews. We didn't have any this week. We did get more five star reviews. So thank you to everyone who who put those in. And in the future, if you'd like to ask a question that way, we'll get to those uh, as well. 15 questions we're going to try to get through every single one of them which means we're not going to get through every single one of them but we're going to endeavor to achieve first question from joshua d i thought it was a really interesting perspective and like a question that i haven't heard asked much about this season but i think is a very valid one bear with me it's a tad long he says everybody including ryan day keeps saying that this team could be special slash historic i don't understand that 
It was last year's team that was special and historic. That team was dominant on both sides of the ball from start to finish and was the better team in the Clemson game. However, the defense lost a historically good defensive end, a corner who was the third pick in the draft, along with another first-round corner. We also lost who I consider to be the heart and soul of the team in J.K. Dobbins. How can we reasonably be expected to be better than last year? What am I missing? Yeah, that's how it is at Ohio State, no matter what. Everybody just assumes everything's going to be better, even if they lose historic players, and I 100% agree with them. I think the reason why people are viewing this team the way that they are is because of one major factor, and that's year two of Justin Fields. Yep. And um, I, I don't know um, exactly how I would stack up against this team. Like, if I knew going into this team, a more mature, just more mature, better Justin Fields um, and this year's team versus last year's team, I'm still picking last year's team. But, hmm. you know... I just don't think you can replace Okuda, Young, and Arnett and pretend like everything's fine and then have major questions on the defense. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, do I think this team is good enough to win a national championship? Absolutely. But when we talk about special historic, I think that word might be thrown around a little bit. And I don't even know if last year's team is special and historic because teams that lose and don't make it to the final destination um, aren't usually viewed as special and historic. I feel like they're viewed as... Um, a what-if situation. So I personally think without um, Dobbins um, on the offensive side and, you know, without those three key pieces on defense, and I never, I can't believe I'm saying this about Arnett, um, it's hard for me to put myself in that space going into the season. Now what we do know about Ohio State, Bill, is that they've recruited a heck of a lot of talent. They've got a lot of really good players, and before Jeff Okuda was here, there was somebody before him, before that person, there was somebody before him, and like, seven banks could come out and, like, by week six be a first-round pick. Like, that happens all the time at Ohio State. And I think part of, you know, analyzing this team is trusting that with all the options and the highly recruited, talented players that they have on the team that somebody's going to step up. But I don't like when people assume that it's going to happen before it happens. We've never done that in any of our coverage, both at Cleveland.com together or here. And I think that sometimes we are viewed as negative as a result of it. But I think Joshua D is 100% correct in the idea that last year's team was historic. And the thing about last year's teams that's most interesting to me is that that might have been the best team in the 10 years that I covered Ohio State, and that team didn't make it, you know, all the way. And it's just a, another perspective of how hard it is to actually win a national championship. And that's also another way to kind of put in perspective how remarkable Alabama and Clemson have been in, in winning it all. Because so much has to happen to, to win it all once, not twice or six times or however many times Nick Saban has done it. So, again, I do think this team could win a national championship, and if they do, considering what's going on in the world right now and the the sacrifices Justin Fields has had to make personally and some of the other players like Wyatt Davis and um, Sean Wade did to come back, they, they will be maybe remembered more historically, more special. But I don't know if they have a better football team right now. Um, but I do think, too, that Justin Fields might have the potential to, to make up for some of those differences. What do you think? I think there's two parts to this. And one is like Ryan Day's feelings, which I think was the probably the tipping off point of this question. Ryan Day, the day after the Big Ten was originally postponed the first time, and we talked about this, said this could have been a once-in-a-lifetime team. This is You become a coach to coach this kind of team. When he said that, I don't think he was necessarily talking about talent, although that was certainly part of, of the equation. But – you know, there's something that happens to a team when you go through something like that, and and it's, I don't know, I don't find it all that interesting. We're just trying to give people an idea of where this came from. 
there's like there's that there's the emotional component there. I mean, they they lost to Clemson in like a brutal fashion last year, and everyone wanted to come back and try to win a national title and make up for that. And like that was that was fueling them, and then they got the season taken away from them. And Ryan Day said what he said back on August twelfth, I think it was. So that's the that's the emotional quotient of this, and I think that's important. And and maybe what was largely framing what why Ryan Day said what he said. But I agree with you on the better football team part. I think the potential's there because the potential's always there with Ohio State. But I, like you, just don't try to assume it's going to be awesome. Like, you know, there was a, there were Boses before Chase Young, and there will be other guys like that after Chase Young. But I like to see Zach Harrison in that role and Tyreek Smith in that role before I just sort of, like, anoint them. One, I think it's, like, a more interesting way to analyze the team than just, like, everyone's awesome and then, like, go close my computer and go eat dinner. Um, that's not how I approach this thing. But I do think there's also there's a p- potential for this to be sort of like the inverse of last year. Last year they were they were historically great defensively, like by a program standard. They were really good. It wasn't just they sucked the year before and got a lot better. Like they were great last year by any metric you want to pick. Um, and the offense was pretty good. I don't think it was great. Certainly not by Ohio State standards. We have a question later that'll address some of that. This year, I think the offense can be awesome. Like maybe, maybe the best offense we've seen at Ohio State, and it's all Justin Fields driven. And maybe the defense might take a step back, but it'll still be good enough to win a national championship. And and I think that's all that matters at the end of the day is are they good enough to win a national championship? Yes, point blank period. But I sort of am on the same page with Joshua D. Like I don't know why we're looking at this collection of Ohio State talent and thinking like, yep, that's the team. Like that that is the you know, era defining team for, for Ryan day when they were so good last year. And like, maybe they will end up with three first round draft picks on their defense and, and Justin Fields will be a first round pick and they'll be awesome because that's what typically happens. But I don't know why we're just like pushing last year aside. Like that was normal when I don't think that was normal. Yeah. I mean, I do think too, that Ryan day has been, um, you know, pretty open with us, I think, and, and pretty honest. And I think that he's somebody that you could trust. And I think that his behavior um, not negative behavior, but just his behavior, his temperament, his desire to play is telling. And I think that you do have to read your coach sometimes. And, like, I do read it, read his his demeanor, especially when there was a chance that this team wouldn't play as devastation. And mm. I know that, like, you know, part of that is because every coach wants to play every year, but I'm not sure that's the case either, Bill. I think it's because he, he knows what he has in his locker room. He knows that a large portion of last year's team's coming back. He knows this is the first quarterback he'll get two years of, and it happens to be one of the most transcendent talents to have ever played at Ohio State. And I think he, he sees the potential of, of getting done what they didn't get done last year. And when he says historic team, I think he means that this is a team that can win a national championship. I don't think that means automatically that it's better than the year before. Um, and I think last year's team will be remembered as – one of the best teams in Ohio State history that didn't get it done. Unfortunately for Ohio State fans, there's a lot of those teams. But, man, that team was good. And if this team could be 85% of that team, which I think is possible if things come together, maybe even 90%, that team could win a national championship. Yeah, no, I think I think they can too. And that, and that's, that's mostly the point, I think, of what Ryan Day was getting at. Like, it's not – the way he framed it was weird because he made it sound like, oh, yeah, this group – yeah, forget about last year, this group, this is the one. And it's like, like how can you possibly say that when you're losing Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and J.K. Dobbins? And and I think, like, if you sat, sat down and hashed it out with Ryan Day that we are doing right now, 
I think it would be a little more nuanced, and he'd go through all that stuff. And, and it's not to say they don't have the potential to be as good. Although I just like I don't I don't think you can be as good as they were defensively losing all three of those guys, but you can still be plenty good enough. So Ryan Day thinks he's a national title winner. I think he has a national title winner. I, th- I think you think he has a national title title winner, and and that's the point of all this. Like I I think we can wait until the year's over to try to compare twenty twenty to twenty nineteen, and it'll be weird because this season's weird. But the potential's there, I think. It, it, if it, it can be as good, I think, but look different. Like, good for different reasons, if that makes sense. Um, but I don't think, like Ryan Day was saying, forget about 19. This team's way better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think that sometimes it's like kind of a coping mechanism. Because people feel like the team should always be as good as it is when it's at its best. And when you lose talent, like in college football, especially as quickly as they do at Ohio State, players come and go so fast sometimes you, you don't even get to really enjoy it. And if that player leaves after a close loss in a playoff game, you know, you just kind of like hope and, and tell yourself, hey, this could still be better. And maybe it will be. But, again, better than last year isn't the benchmark. It's whether this year is good enough. Mm-hmm. And I think those are very different things. Yeah, and that was a really good question from from Joshua. Dio. It was. He asked that because it's not. It is something that I don't think enough people are talking about. But I get it. People are excited. Ohio State football's back. You want to talk about the good things? Uh, Ryan H asks, "What will access look like this year, and what can we expect as far as insights into fall camp?" Uh, it's a good question that I don't. I don't know if we have a great answer for. Um, we won't get to go over to the Woody to watch even stretching. That's just not going to happen. All interviews are going to be done over Zoom. So, like, information gathering is going to be much different than it typically is because you can go to a practice, and even though we can only watch stretching in, like, four periods, you can get a pretty good feel for what the depth chart looks like in those settings. And every now and then you might see something that, that flashes that gives you some insight into who's who's having a good camp or maybe who isn't. Um, it's, it's not going to happen this year. That's going to be a total unknown when they get on the field for the most part on October 24th against Nebraska. And you have to do things like we had Marcus Williamson on a Zoom call the other night, for instance. And I said, like, Marcus Williamson is like, I'm the guy in the slot. I was like, all right, well, who's playing there with you? And then he told me, and like, that's how you get information on the depth chart. And it was Ronnie Hickman and Cam Martinez, which is super interesting. Um, but that's kind of how we have to gather insight is, and that's how we, it was like that way in the past, you know, you ask questions to gather insight, but we can't really use our eyes and that's an important piece of this. And it's going to make it hard to cover camp this year. Yeah. You know, the, the thing too, and I don't know if this is too inside baseball, but you know, the stories that we write that people like to read a lot of times have like interesting quotes in them and, you know, more introspective quotes than you might get in a press conference, because when you're in the football building, um, you're able to do the interviews that everybody records and you see on TV, but sometimes you can walk with guys mm-hmm. and walk with the ta- with table or get a, a few minutes with Ryan alone or um, you know a player alone where you can ask a question that you don't want everybody else to have. And sometimes that turns into a really like, interesting discussion with the player or person you're talking to. Um, and those aren't going to exist anymore. So I think it's going to be tougher to do that, but Landis is uh, in his prime right now. Would you say you're an all-pro in your prime? I'm in my prime, yeah, for like another week. And then I'll, and then I'll be out of it. I'll just be washed up like, like everybody else. I don't know. It's going to be uh, – I don't. people don't care about this, I don't think, but it makes our job a little more interesting. I think if you are not able to, like, watch a football game – 
and gain insight off of that and you're sort of more reliant on call and response question and answer kind of stuff it's going to be hard to kind of write anything insightful this year i think that you are able to do that like as partners like i'm more of the storyline cue and answer talking to you know what's going on guy and i think you're more of the tactical guy yeah and like now that like you're kind of doing this out there on an island without the uh the benefit of going in person i think that like this might actually bode well for you because you're going to get all the same stuff that you got that everybody else is getting plus i think that you have a very keen ability to break things down and, and provide interesting context through um you know players and statistics and, and plays and as you know if you've read any in-season bill landa story uh gifs or gifs or whatever <laughs> uh the uh, uh of plays. so i mean I, i'm excited to see where uh, this takes us. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that the time that we're in is such an inherently interesting time. Uh, I think that, like, uh, you're going to be in empty stadiums and potentially traveling to empty stadiums and kind of seeing Big Ten football from a different perspective. And I think that, like, this might be the time where the author is most important because you're less reliant on what other people are giving you. Um, yeah. So it's going to be about, like, your – I don't know if anybody gives a shit about this, but I just feel like I'm talking to you. That like you like have the ability to like really grow as a writer in the next you know six months and really kind of find yourself and like write um, kind of like Chuck Culpepper from the Washington Post you know like <laughs> you know the autumn leaves and the big words and no he's a he's a wonderful writer and somebody that I think has a natural gift of doing it you know and you know I just think I might be able to develop a different element of your game that maybe you're not interested or that you maybe you haven't had to rely on as much in the past. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting challenge um, trying to find context in things because, like, my least favorite sports story is, like, Coach X said this thing and, like, that's the headline. It's like, okay, like, uh, if I want to read a transcript, I'll go read a transcript, but I'm coming to you for context. And I think people come to us for context and insight. And it'll just be a little harder to gather this year. It won't be impossible, but, but you know, we'll make it work as best as we can and – um, it will be it'll be fun. It'll be different. And I hope from a uh, selfish perspective, I hope it doesn't like set the bar for seasons moving forward when we're not in a pandemic. Um, I hope that one day we'll all be in the same room as Ryan Day again and get to ask him questions and not do it over Zoom. But uh, it'll be doable this, this fall. And, and I'm, I'm kind of excited to see almost what it looks like once the season gets going in a month. Next yeah. question. I am also curious, too, if like protocols change, um, if as things change with corona and treatment and stuff, I wonder if things will incrementally change too. I don't know if this year you're going to be in the same room as anybody, but you know, I don't know. Maybe there will be more access to the sidelines or different things that you might not have had if things start getting safer. I don't know. I'm just talking out loud. Fiesta Bowl bubble. We're all invited. Yep. Uh, Josh M. What? This is like a total doomsday scenario. What? But I thought it was funny. What happens if Penn State versus Ohio State doesn't happen? Who goes to the Big Ten championship game? What happens if both go 8-0 and after championship week? Do both have a shot at the playoff? I don't know, man. Are there tiebreakers? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't... So, so here's the thing. Like, I went and looked at the tiebreakers, and the tiebreakers, the divisional tiebreakers in the Big Ten, Like, if there's a two-team tie, it's straightforward. It's just whoever won the game. And then there's like, there's nothing about this 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 scenario that josh pointed out because why would there be so i just started looking at the other tiebreakers for when there's like three teams involved 
And all of them are win percentage based. And none of them would apply to this scenario that he's laying out. But two found two that I found that would apply were one, which is the fifth tiebreaker in a normal scenario, record of non-divisional opponents, which means Penn State's record or the re- Penn State plays Nebraska and Iowa, Ohio State plays Nebraska and Illinois, and like those two West crossover opponents combined record could be what determines if they go there. So which Penn be, State's going, <laughs> which mean Penn State would go. Uh, and the eighth tiebreaker, the final tiebreaker, if they go through all these things and they couldn't figure out who should go, is the representative will be chosen by random draw. I also think <laughs> they can do rock, paper, scissors like you and I do and everything. Yeah. Um, Josh M. might be one of the most loyal listeners, right? Yes. And let me tell you, Josh, don't stay up at night thinking about this stuff, man. Just, you know, hope they win. Like, if, if this happened... Ohio State would still go to the playoff probably. They're not going to leave Ohio State out of the playoff as an undefeated team if Illinois lost more games than Iowa. <laughs> if that's the criteria, you know, and I don't know, like they uh, maybe they. Well, this out a way is for this is up. yeah. Like if Ohio State, if Ohio State's eight and zero, but doesn't doesn't have a Big Ten title because Illinois lost more games. No, than I know. Iowa. Yeah. St- <laughs> I still think that people are going to know what to do here. I mean, yeah, I know. I I don't think there's going to. I don't know. Here, let me ask you this, Bill. Do you think there's going to be more teams undefeated this year because of the shortened schedules, or do you think there's going to be less because of how chaotic everything is? Uh, I don't like the same. I don't know the same. I guess right because at some point you got to play a conference championship and one wins and one loses. No, I know, but like I'm just trying to like picture a scenario. Do you think that we're going to be in week nine and there's going to be seven or eight undefeated teams? Yeah, or I think, think at like- that point you could have that. Yeah, when it's all when it all settles, no, but but yeah, and and the. When Ohio State's going to play, um, I guess like Michigan State is their second to last game, and at the end of December, yeah, I think it's possible that like Ohio State's undefeated, um, Michigan's undefeated, some team from the Big Ten West is undefeated, Alabama's undefeated, Clemson's undefeated. Like, yeah, I think that's definitely possible. You, um, I think it's possible that everybody in the country has a loss going into December too. Yeah, it's a weird year for sure. I think that I'd almost maybe say that that might be more likely than everyone than having like seven undefeated teams. Yeah, and then I, I go back and I look at Ohio State's schedule and I'm like, I don't know who's going to lose, who's going to beat them before December. I mean, the only option is Penn State. Yeah, so I don't know unless some weird, odd Purdue thing happens because nobody played in the spring and you know things are sloppy or whatever. But like I've I've been watching the quality of football and I think it seems like people have been able to kind of get it together. I don't think it's been. I think maybe Week One was more sloppy, but I'm. Super excited to watch, like Alabama and Missouri uh, on Saturday, and I'm—I mean, I, I watched Clemson's first quarters for <laughs> entertainment purposes, and uh, they came out hot. Let me put <laughs> let, let me put it this way: if you were banking on them coming out yeah. uh, slow in Week One, uh, you uh, lost money and whatever. But poor, <laughs> poor Citadel. <laughs> anyway, Josh, uh, yeah, don't lose don't lose sleep over that. But if it happened, it'd be pretty wild. Yeah. Um, Question from uh, our main man, G. Nilly. Much has been made about Ohio State's about how Ohio State's offense could be historically good this year. Do you think they can average close to eight yards per play? 2019 LSU averaged 7.9. Oklahoma has been above eight the last three years. Love that he looked up these stats. Last year, the Buckeyes were at 6.9. Nice. What would it take for them to get up to the neighborhood of eight yards per play, and do you think that could push them to a national championship? Do you think Ohio State's uh – Average would have been up closer to eight if J.K. Dobbins was faster. (laughs) 
I think it would have been up closer to eight if J.K. Dobbins wasn't their running back. Uh, Ohio State ran the ball 150 more times in LSU last year and 98 more times in Oklahoma last year. Oklahoma also plays awful defenses every week. Um, but I think it's just a product of Ohio State runs the ball more more than those teams. Um, and their program record for yards per play is 7.14. So what Gene Neely's talking about, and that was in 2013, what Gene Neely's talking about getting to eight yards per play is something that's never happened before. And if it did happen, I think it'd be particularly noteworthy in a conference like the Big Ten. So I don't think they're going to quite get to that level, but I do think they'll be above seven because they're going to throw the ball more and I think throw the ball downfield more. Um, and yeah, like if you're, I think if you're around seven or better, then you're fine for a national championship because that's like indicative of, of explosion. And if you're anything below that, like 6.9 is not great, um, but it's not the worst thing. And anything above that mid sevens, anything cl- closer to eight, certainly, um, then you're an explosive offense. Can I ask a really stupid question? Yep. And I'm going to call you coach because like you're like up in the high tower of football knowledge. But is the difference between eight and seven, does that even matter? An average yards per play, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I don't know. Like once you're in the seven category, it just like, what does that mean? You like broke off a few extra seventy yard touchdown runs against the Citadel. Like, is that like what that is? Like, I don't like I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, that's where that's where it comes in for sure. Yeah, it's all. I mean, con- there's context necessary and everything. So yeah, yeah. I think it's like eight. LSU seven point nine is way more impressive than Oklahoma's eight. I don't like. And eight I mean, LSU's the- offense last year too was maybe the best offense in the history of college football, right? It was really good. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I think it's – And, and the fact sure. that they did it against, like, legit teams and legit defenses. Um, I think it's possible. I I mean, I, I also think, too, that the one thing that we have to take into account here, Bill, is that there's no non-conference games against teams that are defenseless. Mm-hmm. And, like, that usually takes a big part of it. Like, there's going to be no 77 nothing win over Bowling Green this year. And I don't know, like, who LSU played in the non-conference off the top of my head last year or what Oklahoma did to – some of the teams that they had to play, but like the fact that they are only playing conference games, I think makes it harder. I think if they could match six point nine or seven, that they would be in a good position, and that's something that you should take. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be historically good, like in the context of the entire sport. But I do think they can be historically good in the context of the program, and that program record is seven point one four in two thousand thirteen. So, and, and but would yeah. you use this this metric or this stat to like guide your thought process on how historically good Ohio State's offense is? Or what you would think more of like yards per play? I mean yards per game, um, Justin Fields stats, the the prof- the efficiency of the receivers, whether or not Sermon gets going. Like I like looking at that. Like like I think that like one of the best Ohio State offenses in the program's history was in 06 with Troy Smith, and that team statistically couldn't is dwarfed by the worst team of the 2010s. And like I just like yeah. I don't know how much this kind of thing even matters. Like well I the think game's that, different like, now. The game is different yeah. now than so like this 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 stat I think is. Yeah, you just compare. I'm sure if you compared their the 06 offenses yards per play to the other offenses of that era, then maybe it compares a little more favorably than it would to teams playing right now. Um, it's not the only thing. I think efficiency is important. Third down percentage and all that kind of stuff. Um, balance. So it's not the only. It's like I'm not going to like base my ultimate judgment on Ohio State's offense this year solely on yards per play, but it's part of the equation for sure. Yeah, it's just like funny that if you go back and you look at like Troy Smith's stats from 2006 do you know how many touchdowns he threw that year 26 30 but same scenario it's like Dwayne Haskins in a year that they didn't make the playoff through 50 you know like it's like and I would say that 06 offenses was um 
maybe the best they've ever had just in terms of what it looked like. And, you know, I don't know. I, you I think it was. You think that offense that. is better? You thought you thought oh six is better than like thirteen, like what Braxton was was yes. fully formed Braxton. Yeah. I mean, when you like think about like what was on that team, and it was like one of those things where, and the thing that we don't really see very often, and I don't know if this is like an a, a advanced way of explaining this, but you know, in the NFL, when you like watch a quarterback, and as you do, you break tape down for fun because you're a psychopath. Um, <laughs> You throw the route um, or the ball in the air before the route's completed, and the ball is where the receiver should be. Yeah. I don't know that any quarterback in Ohio State history has done that better than Troy Smith. Yeah. And, like, he would throw ball, ball. The ball would be out before the person made a cut or before the receiver was on a curl, and the ball would be readily available. Like, the chemistry that that takes and the poetry, it's, like, poetic to look at it. And, like, I think that Justin Fields and some of the great athletic quarterbacks Ohio State's had in the last 10 years were super good. But, I like, as we talk about passers, and, like, we covered Dwayne Haskins in his Heisman season, and, like, he had some tremendous throws. Like, I'm not saying that people couldn't throw, but the way that that offense functioned as a unit, I don't know if any quarterback has distributed the ball that way. If it was third and six, Ohio State was going to get it. If it was third and, you know, ten – Ohio State was going to have a hitch route on the sidelines and it was going to be perfect and the ball was going to be there on time and it was just I don't know and, and combine that with some of the other players that were on the team and you know a lot of the talent on there in that era that team was as good as I've seen and I think that's what makes the 06-07 finish um, to Florida in the national title game so painful for people because that team was as aesthetically beautiful as a team could possibly be. Yeah, I think you have to let your eyes guide you in, in this kind of thing. And there are there are statistical benchmarks that I think you, you want to hit just to feel comfortable with your ability to win, and that's kind of what I think Gene Nilly is getting at. But I'm also like I'm not losing sleep if Ohio State averages 7.1 yards per play this year right? because of what you're talking about. Like, does the offense look crisp? And if it's not as explosive as anything we've ever seen, that's fine. Is it efficient? Is there is there chemistry? And then, like, the rest of it I think will take care of itself. And I think that's what you saw when you were watching Troy back then. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, we've seen it at, at times. And, like, I mean, the 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 end of the 14 season, the offense was incredible between yeah. Devin Smith and Cardale. Like, I don't know if that counts as the whole thing. And maybe we forget about how pretty it was because of how dysfunctional 15 was. But, like, you know it when you see it. And I think that there's a yeah. chance. And I think we saw it last year, you know, at times. <clears throat> like, there were certain times with Olave and – you know, even Garrett Wilson, like there were some certain plays there that, you know, had things been finished the right way, like that we'd be looking at differently. Like you can go back and watch all these ESPN classic games of Ohio State's like 06 win at Michigan and some of the darts that Troy threw, but like Justin Fields passed to Garrett Wilson in the Michigan game last year would stack up everywhere as bit as high as some of these other plays, even if it wasn't a game deciding play because of how awesome it was, but perspective changes. And, like, I don't think we see a lot of the highlights of the 06 season because it didn't end the right way. Like, I know the 02 season by heart because it's been played over and over and over again every game. But the 06 season's kind of a blur because they blew out everybody but one team and then it didn't finish the right way. But in terms of, like, what I remember watching and what Troy Smith did, I mean, you go watch some of these Ted Ginn highlights and some of these Troy Smith highlights. They had a, they had some players, man. And, like, I don't know, Ted Ginn Jr. might not be considered one of the best receivers in Ohio State football anymore, especially because Mike Thomas and some of the guys that have come in the time since. But you and I, like, were joking, too, about his speed. Like, I don't know how fast he was on the clock, but that dude 
was the fastest dude that ever played at Ohio State, in my opinion. And like, I think we had an argument once that you said Zeke was faster than him, or something like that. And it's just like no, that I might think be the case. I, Who, I think who's I faster said, than Ted? No, we were talking about Zeke and, and JK. We weren't talking about. I don't okay. think we we're talking about. Ted. No, I know, but I think I was once having an argument with somebody about like Ted Ginn being the fastest guy in program history, and like somebody's like, "Well, so and so ran a faster forty time than him." I'm like, I don't give a shit what your forty time is. That guy was fast. <laughs> And if you go watch his highlights, like I don't think there's been a more explosive player in the last 20 years than him. Yeah. Any yeah. individual player. So, like, I think we get bogged down with eras, and I think this kind of, like, was a small tangent off the reservation a little bit, but it kind of pertains to the first question. It's like everything's about context, and, like, things are changing and things are different. It doesn't mean better or worse, but there's a lot of things to sort through, and you know, I think this team has a chance to be historically good offensively from that eye test perspective. And, I, and ironically enough, in a year like this, I think that's very important. You want them to look as, as efficient and as uh, I think the word here is functional as possible. Yeah, I'm not even when I when I'm 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 excited to watch Ohio State's offense this year, and it's not um, partly because it's a weird year. I'm not fixated on what the stats are going to be, but even if it wasn't a weird year, I'm not super fixated on that I, I, anyway. I want to see like we talked about it last last episode like what, what Justin Fields has at stake this year and what what improvement looks like. I want to see like better timing in this offense and it was good last year, but I think it could have been better. And that last play against Clemson, I think, is indicative of that as as much as anything. Like if that ball comes out on time, it's a touchdown and it's not an interception because Chris Olave is not breaking off of his route. And I'm not saying like you know it, it was a it was a breakdown between quarterback and receiver. I think he put it on both of them, but. If that's a second-year quarterback and receiver who have a full season or at that point a full two seasons under their belt of playing with each other, I think the ball comes out faster and there's better recognition of what's happening on that play, and that's just chemistry. And I want to see that. I want to see like I want to see Justin Fields like playing quarterback without having to think, and Chris Olave running his routes without having to think, and like just knowing that they're going to be on the same page. And the same with Garrett Wilson, and the same with the run game, and and they had that in spurts last year, but I don't think it was super consistent all the time. And now when you go into a second year with a guy who's as talented as Justin Fields, I think that's the kind of thing that gets Ryan Day excited. It's just like the the, the bond that he builds with all these playmakers. Um, and if it clicks, like it's going to be really damn good. Maybe it will be eight yards per play. I have no idea. But I know it's going to look nice regardless of what the yards per play is. Yeah. All right. That was a long answer to uh, Gene Ellie. I thought that was gonna a good discussion. Though. Bomb it down it. the field. Uh, two quarterback questions, Michael J and Eric B. We'll go with Michael's first. Penn, he lays out the scenario. Penn State, third quarter. Ohio State's up by 14. Field gets, Fields gets dinged for a series or two. Who does Ryan Day give the quarterback nod to? So he's unavailable because I would say put him back in. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just out for a series or two. Uh, you guys I think C.J. Stroud. I think in this specific scenario, it would be Gunnar Hoke. Second game of the year. Yeah. You don't... I forgot you have, Gunnar Hoke existed for the second straight podcast. So. Yeah, if you have an inkling that Fields is not out for the game, but just out for a series or two, and it's just like, please go out there and don't turn the ball over, I think you put Gunnar Hoke in the game. And it's always the interesting question. Yeah. We talked about, you talked about this with Doug at cleveland.com. It's like, who's your backup, and then who's your guy if your starter gets hurt and can't play for the rest of the year? And I think those are often two different people. And in this scenario, I think that might be at least this that early in the season. Yeah, emergency, emergency, go in. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I yeah. probably will change my answer too if it's just like they're already up by fourteen and they play conservatively for a few series if they know that like Fields is getting taped up or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, you're you're probably right. Score one for me, and then the the spinoff from that from Eric B was 
How do you think Ryan Day will handle blowouts as far as backup quarterbacks go? Do you think both Stroud and Miller will get reps, or will they focus on preparing one backup in case Fields would unfortunately have to miss time? I think you play them both. I think you play them both, yeah. Right? At least at least early. And I don't think they'd have – maybe they'll have the opportunity against Nebraska. I would not anticipate they'd have it against Penn State. But then you get uh, Rutgers and Maryland back-to-back, I think. And that's like go time in my mind for C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller. And I think you play them both kind of evenly and then see maybe where you are after those two games to figure out who your real number two is. And, like, no disrespect to Gunnar Hoke. It's just, like, it's more important, I think, for the program that, that Stroud and Miller get those reps than, than Gunnar Hoke gets them. What's the threshold for when you pull your quarterback in the Rutgers game? Twenty-one nothing. Yeah, maybe four, maybe four touchdowns. Twenty-eight nothing. They didn't like. I remember last year at Rutgers, it was like the clunkiest run out to like thirty-five to seven you've ever seen, and then they put Justin Fields back out to start the third quarter, and that kind of blew my mind a little bit. But I think this is a very different scenario. So yeah, I think if you're up like twenty-eight nothing. The first half spread in last year's Ohio State Rutgers game was twenty eight and a half. Sounds about right. And uh, I don't know what happened. There was like a fumbled punt or something, and Rutgers scored a garbage touchdown in the second quarter and like beat everybody by the hook. If you if you laid the points, yeah, yes, I can't remember what happened either. But there was a yeah, I think it was, it was a, like a weird play a that like yeah. Rutgers got a touchdown that nobody anticipated they would get, and it like screwed the entire spread for everybody. So, uh, yeah, to answer Sorry if question, I brought up some nightmares for you guys. <laughs> yeah, sorry for anybody who, uh, who watches games for entertainment purposes only. Um, <laughs> I, think they, I think they get them both work early, and then by mid-year, um, basically after the Maryland game, I think I had the, the order of the schedule right, um, you settle on who your number two guy is out of those two. <clears throat> Brian M., uh, curious to where... Curious about where the running backs are in terms of readiness. Marcus Crowley seemed like an explosive runner when he saw limited action. Injuries and all considered, what should we expect from the group? What are you expecting from the running backs? I think that it's going to be a very interesting group. My expectation is that it's going to be... You just tweeted this before um, we started recording this podcast. You were listening to Ryan Day's show. And he's mentioned Demario McCall. What did he say about Demario McCall? Uh, kind of the, the same stuff like that we've been saying for for four years. Like maybe he's like a third down kind of back. He's still kind of in between rooms, but do they get him into the mix more as a ball carrier now than they ever have in the past? I was thinking the other day, and like I, I guess I have to go back and refresh my memory. But I, like the idea that they didn't put him in the game to carry the ball after J.K. got hurt against Clemson was interesting, and I wonder maybe how that segment of that game might have gone differently if they put a guy like him in the game at least got him some touches instead of just giving it to Teague a couple times I never thought about that um, I didn't think about it in the moment it just like popped into my head the other day but we never would have expected that to happen anyway in that no moment. like no. going into it right like you, you the reason why I asked that is like is he even going to figure into this offense, like I mean, people are obsessed with it. We might as well talk about it for a second. But is he going to be a running back? He's not a between the tackles runner. So, like, what is he? Third down back? Somebody they can swing a pass to, or is he just out of the mix? Because I don't really know what he is, especially now that Garrett Wilson's in the slot. Like, I don't know what you do with him. 
it's like the, the, the third down back role I don't think exists. Like, that's, like, that's a very NFL thing. That's like Boston Scott on the Eagles. And, well, I know, um, but Ryan Day is pretty NFL thinking, isn't he? Yeah, which is why I'm surprised that they didn't do more of that last year. And like I love the idea of like it's third and six and DeMario's in the backfield and then you motion him out into the slot and some poor linebacker's got to try to cover him and then he just like runs a slant or an option route and it's a first down all day. Um, and they did that a couple times, but they didn't do it a lot. And and I guess maybe they just didn't do it because they didn't feel like they had to because J.K. was so good. Like, why take J.K. off the field? Um, maybe this year because, well, I think like Trey Sermon and Master Teague are going to be pretty good and Marcus Crowley, if he's healthy enough, I think is a good running back too. Maybe none of those guys are so good that you – don't feel bad taking about off the field, taking them off the field, and then that's an opening for Demario. I don't know. Like I get excited about him every year, and then I get my heart broken. So I'm trying not to get excited about him now. Um, but I think if if throughout his entire career, like he was with Zeke at the beginning, and then he was with Dake, J.K. and Mike Weber after that, this is the first time to me that like it actually might make sense to put him on the field and take some some snaps away from your starting tailback because I just don't think they're as dynamic as they've been. So hopefully that's the case because I want to see it happen because I just think he is he is a weapon if you want to use him in that way. But I don't I don't know if they think of him that way or if he's just a guy that they know that we love to hear about so they keep saying his name and then they're not going to use him. Yeah, I don't think he's going to play at all. Um, I uh, what I expect from the running backs is and Teague is back working out right. So yeah, I don't from, know like so how the health, like the health um, update I think would be like. Sermon Sermon is good and should be good. I think Teague is good. We saw Teague running in one of the videos I put out in the summer, and he's seven months removed from his injury, so I think the idea is that he'd be okay. Ryan Day said Crowley was still working his way back, whatever that means, from his ACL injury. But I think at the very least you'll have a, a healthy Sermon, a healthy Teague. Mayan Williams like was rocked up when he got here out of, out of high school in the summer and then Steel Chambers. So they have at least two top guys and possibly three in Crowley. Yeah, I think it's going to be the uh, Trey Sermon show. I think Teague's going to f- work in there, and I think that um, it's going to be a bunch of that ninety percent, and then the rest will just be other carries for other guys. I, I don't, I don't. I think it's if you have two running backs that you're not sure who the starter is, um, then why not run both? And like you know, the third and three scenario. Like I don't even know if that exists anymore. But like, if somebody said, "Who do you want in the game on third and three or third and four? Uh, Master Teague or Trey Sermon or Demario McCall. Like I think McCall will be my third pick. So like that's what's so confusing about that. It's just like what do you, what can Ohio State's offense do to put him in a scenario where he has the ball and a yard to make something happen? And it's like I don't know that it's out of the backfield. Yeah, and there's also like while while the running back room is not maybe as star studded as it has been in his time here, um, H is potentially really good or slot, I guess we should say is potentially really good with Garrett Wilson there and Jackson Smith and Jigba can kind of play anywhere. And Mookie Cooper was another guy that Ryan day talked about on this radio show on Thursday. Ryan day was asked about like Adrian Martinez and it spun off into a thing about uh, Wandale Robinson, Nebraska's really good receiver. And then that spun into a thing about Rondale Moore. And then Ryan day was like, Oh yeah, Mookie Cooper's like those guys too. So that's like exciting names to compare a guy to Mookie Cooper hasn't played football in, in a year and a half by the time he gets on the field in October. So that's something to keep in mind, but there's just a lot. He's Demario's always had stuff in front of him, and now he's got a little less in front of him. But guys behind him who might come and take his spot at the, like the, the time he was finally going to have an opening to get on the field. Yep. And I'll be quite sad if there are 25 uh, tailback carries, like non-garbage time tailback carries in a game. How do you think that gets broken down between Trey Sermon and Master Teague? 
Uh, 25 total? Yeah. 13, Trey, 7, 8, 9, Teague, 2 or 3 for garbage time. Or 2 or 3 um, somebody for, for somebody else. Yeah, not garbage time. Yeah, I think I think that might be the case. I don't think Matt or Trey Sermon... Trey Sermon's never been a 20-carry game guy. I, I don't think he's going to be one in this offense. Not that I don't think he's capable of it. I just think they have a, enough guys and there's not as much separation between everybody. Yeah. So I think I'm on the same level. Um, this is like a pretty nitty-gritty football question. Um, not really, but kind of. From Tyler S., he says, Near the end of the season last year, the defense showed a vulnerability to quarterback runs. Uh, Penn State back quarterback, Wisconsin quarterback in the Big Ten Championship, uh, Trevor Lawrence in the Fiesta Bowl. Were these due to scheme or lack of discipline on assignments? Uh, what can they do to correct the issue? Someone replied, I think it was Gene Nelly replied to that question and said they're not fast enough at linebacker. Like, I don't think that's it. Um, I think part of it's scheme, and which is why they're talking about Kerry Combs using some more split safety stuff. I think when you get two safeties on the back end of the defense and maybe play some like quarters coverage like they did with Chris Ash was here, that other safety kind of like on the back side of the play just helps you a lot with that stuff. But I also think like if you went back and look at that stuff, and I was watching some of the film this morning, I just went and looked quickly. Like Jack Cohn, who you would never expect in your life to run for a touchdown against a team like Ohio State, ran for a touchdown against Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship. And if you watch that play, Wisconsin very smartly used motion and got Ohio State safeties to rotate and Cam Brown was at the back of the defense. I'm assuming in a spot he's never been in before, like he's playing free safety and they run a read option and Cam Brown follows the run action and then Jack Cohn comes out the back and there's nobody in the middle of the field because why is Cam Brown playing free safety? So teams, I think, saw Ohio State's defensive scheme last year and of course toward the end of the year found some ways to manipulate that and that's where you saw some of that stuff. Um, Baron Browning, I thought, in a lot of those plays did not have great recognition and I think that's part of the reason why we're talking about his role change a little bit this year because I just don't think he looks comfortable like playing in the box and having to read stuff in the backfield. I think he gets confused easily, um, and that's why some of that stuff happens. So it's a combination of things. It's not one thing, but I think they're going to try to address it with scheme and personnel deployment this year. And it's something that's not going to come up week to week, but it will come up when they play like Michael Penix in Indiana and possibly when they play Penn State and certainly at the end of the year when they're playing you know, Clemson or even Michigan and Joe Milton, if he wants to run the ball too. So I don't think it's a glaring issue, but, but it was an issue. And I think they have stuff in their minds to address it. You got anything on that? I honestly blacked out. Like, I don't even know like what you were saying. I wasn't even paying attention. Yeah. Cause I like, I knew the second I read this question that we were going to get, I heard quarters defense and then my, my lights went out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think you did good. Thanks man. This question's for you then. Uh, cause you were here when urban got here and I actually wasn't around to hear like the origin of this. Maybe you were, I don't have a great answer for this. Uh, Matthew W. What all goes into getting a black stripe removed? Is it purely demonstrating effort slash excellence on excellence on the practice field or are there off field criteria as well? Um, a couple of freshmen have lost their stripes, Jackson Smith and Jigba G Scott jr. Court Williams, uh, Trey Sermon is an older guy who lost it. Um, Walk-ons, he says in the past, I've lost it. But you were here when Urban like introduced that, and that's like a thing now. Um, I don't know. Do you have a good ex- answer for that on like what goes in the guy getting a straight removed? I'm like reading the story that I wrote for Cleveland.com about this in 2016, but um, basically all it is is just a, a ritual designed by Urban Meyer as an in-house motivational tactic for his players. And my general understanding of it is that the stripe doesn't come off of a freshman's helmet until he's proven he's worthy of being a Buckeye. I don't think I've said anything that nobody already knows, but I think that that is involved in um, all sorts of things. I don't think it means like how good you are in practice, like if you make a great catch. I think other things go involved with it, like like um, 
effort putting it in the weight room, uh, how long you're um, showing up to the building every day, like what your attitude is like when things aren't going your way, how hard you persevere through workouts. Like I think all that stuff takes into account, but I think there's a real correlation between when that comes off and when and how good a player's catching on. And I think that's a good indication. Even Urban Meyer said, like, if somebody gets his, his stripe off early, that means things are starting to take really quickly. And, like, I'm looking at some of the names that's got their uh, black stripes removed um, from 2013 to 15. And, like, you have names like Curtis Samuel, Raekwon McMillan, um, Isaiah Prince, KJ Hill, um, all these names that I'm, like, reading off right now Mike Weber, um, BB Landers, like, all Justin Hilliard in 15, like these are the guys who were among the first five that had their 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 stripes removed. Joey Brosa, uh, Billy Price, Ezekiel Elliott, um, Mike Mitchell is kind of a funny one, but uh, <laughs> a lot of these guys turned out to be really good football players. So I, I don't know that there's like an actual metric where you have to like achieve certain goals and, and it's like a tangible thing. I think it's something that's done through discussion with the coaching staff and it's more so about like proving you're ready for the challenge of, of the responsibility of being an Ohio State football player, not how well you're practicing. Um, so, And I think that a lot of times that those other aspects of your game in terms of whether you take to being an Ohio State football player isn't about whether or not you're really good in practice. I think the general assumption is that all these five-star prospects are doing things that are really good in practice. And we saw a one-handed catch from Garrett Wilson. It's like, I'm sure that stuff was happening right when he got here. You know, and like... Um, I do I do like the idea of it. I like the uh, earning your keep and, and being in the family and, and proving that you're there. Um, but I also think there's a deep correlation between guys who catch on quickly and how well they end up being in their career. I remember Joe Burrow like took forever to lose his. I actually don't even know if he ever like if they ever ceremoniously lost his, and then he was just like on the field. But I remember that kind of dragging on a little bit, and then he became. You know which one took the longest, right? No. There's one that took over a year. The person didn't lose their stripe until the second, until their sophomore season, and that's only happened one time. Who was it? Eli Apple. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I think he had like some sort of like vitamin deficiency or something like that. Was having a hard time practicing, and he used to talk about how he had a terrible attitude his first year, and Urban Meyer hated him when he first got here, and all you know, like the the, the storyline. And then he like did he almost the did he almost leave? He almost left, and, you know, all the, all the same, you know, check out some other websites for 19 of those stories here in the next month. But, like, he also turned into a top 10 pick, so, like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <clears throat> Ryan S. asks, where does Tate Martell end up? Is this a me question? Mine, buddy. I mean, we all, no, I, I mean, I could I could wax poetic about this for an hour about right, how, go ahead. about Tate Martell not getting a shot. No, I, I I was he opted out of Miami. I guess the I, the vibe is that he's going to transfer. I don't know if this is the end of his career or not. I still hope that somewhere somewhere someone will give him the opportunity to play quarterback in college, but it's probably not going to happen. What's his eligibility situation right now? I have no idea. I don't know. Like he signed in he, the eighteen class, right? Seventeen. Seventeen class. Yeah. So he redshirted his first year, seventeen. Then he was 18, a redshirt freshman in eighteen. Then transferred in nineteen. And like didn't play. So theory, he's a redshirt sophomore or redshirt yeah, junior going into this year. Plus he's junior. opting out, and that's a free year. And there's a free year. But if he transfers again, then he has to sit out and only have one year left. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's on track to graduate, and he could transfer somewhere and play two years and play immediately. How is he not going to graduate? 
I don't know. You guys I don't, been know, if, in I don't know if he goes to class. The guy's in South Beach living the dream. No, I know, but I'm saying, like, theoretically, if he goes to class and does a graduate transfer, he could transfer to another program and have two years of eligibility left after all this, right? Yeah. UNLV, that's your that's phone ringing. I think there's a lot of worse things. Would you rather be the starting quarterback at UNLV or the backup at Miami? Starter at UNLV. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Especially if I were if I was Tate Martell. I'd own that city. Yeah, playing the Raider Stadium, just tossing dimes under Al Davis's gaudy giant torch that someone yeah, thought was a good idea. Yeah, you can go to all idea. those uh, seven on seven camps and take your shirt off and show off your tattoos and all the stuff. Like, I mean, yeah. that's what I would do. Yeah, that's his home. That's actually not his home. That's where he went to high school. That's his home. Um, Anybody who lives in Vegas for more than six months of their life, Vegas becomes your home. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Joe's, UCLA could be interesting too, or like something like that. Put Tate Martell like, in. Uh, in uh, Chip Kelly's offense? I don't know. San Diego State? I'm just trying to think of, like, cool California places he could go play at. USC. Isn't Brady Hoke a coach in, like, at University of San Diego? I think he, yeah. He's either, yeah, he's in one of the he, San Diego schools, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oregon? Yeah, Oregon. Washington, <laughs> complete the circle. He commits there as a seventh grader. Could you imagine? It's a circle. I hope it happens. Like I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I know. Like yeah, it's like my thing on Twitter. Do you think that. he can play? Like, yeah. it's always a joke. I think he can like, play. Think I think he can play. I think he can play at a place like UNLV. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think he can like guide Ohio State to a national title. Um, I just don't think he's a good enough thrower or consistent enough thrower. But yeah, I think he can play. I think he's got a little little something to him. He'd be fun as hell to watch. Um, Do you think if Johnny Manziel didn't exist, he would have ever been a five-star prospect? That's a good question. Probably not. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, what his physical attributes were during the recruiting process, which could be an interesting story. Not to, to beat up on him, but, like, what he ever did to to um, earn or achieve the pressure that was put on him other than winning at the most loaded high school talented roster in the country. Like, you know, he never lost a high school start, but, like, from a physical attributes standpoint, like, when you look at what five-star quarterbacks look like now, he didn't match up at all. Height-wise, strength-wise, speed-wise, none of it. Uh, speed-wise, he might. He was a pretty good runner. He's pretty dynamic with the ball in his hands. No, no, he's very, very shifty and very good with the, as a runner, but he's not faster than a lot of these guys. Put on the Rutgers tape, baby. And yeah, no, go ahead think. and tweet it out. <laughs> I have it saved on my desktop. Uh, Joseph S. asked... Uh, OSU often as a senior who hasn't really made a mark in his career, but then take a huge, takes a huge step forward in his last year on campus. Who are your candidates to do that this year? Is it just the most obvious answer here, or is this like what I want to, what I hope for happens? Uh, it can be both. The obvious one's Coop, right? Cooper's obvious, but also Hilliard. Hilliard, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're both kind of similar. I think the actual answer might be. I think the actual answer might be Marcus Williamson if he's going to be the starting nickel. Yeah, um, he's a senior; hasn't played much. Um, I think he's had some injury stuff. Um, I'm still. I still don't really know what the defense is actually going to look like. I think the base we saw last year is the base, but I think it's possible that they don't play that as much as we saw last year. Um, but if they are, then Marcus Williamson's a starting nickel. That's a pretty important spot, and he's going to get a lot of attention um, and a lot of opportunity to be the kind of guy we're talking about. Yeah, I think that uh, – I mean, like, it's hard to choose between the three of those. But, like, when you add in the fact that Justin Hilliard was, like, injured every year of his career and then, like, finally made a big play at the end of the Penn State game last year, remember? And, like, 
got another year. Um, so many. I mean, Cooper. It's like you. No matter what you do, like you, you can come up with it. But those are the three main candidates. You choose which one you like. Yeah, I think. I mean, if you want to, if you want to keep the Demario hype train rolling, you put him in that position. Jalen Harris is another one. Um, but yeah, I think there's only a handful of guys, and, and Williamson, I think, might be the most likely. Uh, Steven B, outside of Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, what potential receiver do you believe will step up this season and be the number three? Jackson. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on the Smith and Jigba train big time. Um, I went back and watched his highlight tape last week, and it's re- remarkably good. He's uh, some of the stuff he did at like and playing six A ball in Texas now. Like this isn't, you know, he's not going out there and playing against a bunch of pee wee teams. <clears throat> he was uh, he had like five thousand receiving yards at Rockwall. Every single week he's had six hundred yards receiving and nine touchdowns. Yeah. I don't even know like if he was like playing, you know, I don't know. He's a stud. Yeah, he's he's my guy. Um, <clears throat> maybe Jamison Williams if they open it up and start taking some more shots. I think I think he's that guy that does that for you. Um, outside of that, I don't know. I think it's probably a freshman, and if I had to pick a freshman, I would pick Smith and Jigba. You want to hear what's so funny? I was—I think I was meaning to tell you this when I was watching the highlight tape two weeks ago, but I guess I'll tell you and everybody else. But do you remember when I was in Dallas, uh, like when Smith the Jigba was a senior, and yeah. I went and I had breakfast with his high school coach, and I wrote mm-hmm. that story? Do you remember what the angle of that story was? I don't actually. I can't remember. Smith Najigba is the type of pro- like Ohio State's doing to the University of Texas what Michigan State does to Ohio State by coming in and taking a really good player oh. that the home state team wasn't paying close enough attention to and then sneaking out a gem because I think at the time he was a three-star prospect or even like a low-rated four and like Texas hadn't recruited him yet which is hilarious and like I just went and looked at his profile right now and he finished as the number 29 overall player and a bona fide five-star stud in the 2020 class. And it's just like, God, that was wrong. <laughs> like, what the Maybe hell not was Texas time. watching? Like, were they, not, they, they did not bother to watch Rockwall play football? Yeah. I, Rockwall High School, home of Austin Grandstaff. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Huge, giant school. Yeah, I went there. I watched uh, – I, I went after the national championship game and when Austin Grandstaff was a commit for the Ohio State basketball team, I watched his team play with Austin and his dad because Austin was hurt. And his I dad was wearing a leather Nike EYBL jacket. What did you he, have for dinner that night? That night I had uh, – I had um, – <laughs> you know what you had. I had In-N-Out, and then I had Whataburger. <laughs> <laughs> Landis and I were here. Uh, this was after the national championship game, and Bill had never been to In-N-Out or Whataburger, so I said, let's get both. <laughs> yeah, that was a great That was a great night. Yeah. Um, I think the story I wrote that day might have sucked because Austin Grants had didn't play basketball, but um, the food was good. Which one this, do you think uh, better? In and Out's a better burger. I think In and Out is very overrated, but it's not bad. Um, it's 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 a solid burger. Their fries are awful. Um, <laughs> that's not a hot take. Three more questions. Al C wants the playoff committee to do it more like basketball, where there's no rankings until the final announcement. Do you think that'd be a good thing or a bad thing? Would that be uh, more or less effective, more or less fun to discuss after the field is announced? I think people get locked into what the rankings look like at first, and they try to apply precedent to what's going to happen, and I think that's been the mistake that I've made for the past five years. And, like, if you just accept it for what it is and, like, enjoy it for the entertainment of what it is. And doesn't basketball have selection shows now early before then? 
basketball now. I they will like release seed the, the top sixteen teams top or something, 16. don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, but that's it's not kind the, of already it's ha- not the number. It's not the number that is like they announced the top four seeds in each region like a month before the selection Sunday. But that number doesn't follow that doesn't then follow that team the rest of the year. They're still whatever the AP poll number is is the number that's next to their name. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is entertainment value, so like, I love that they do this. It gives us something to look forward to on Thursday nights. I think it's important to give us perspective of where teams are um, and to like be in the dark about where the committee stands on certain teams in November would suck. So, yeah, I'm not I sure th- that I would like that. I like this. Um, what I do like, I'm watching this really tremendous show on ABC right now with my girlfriend called For Life. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, and there's going to be a reason that I uh, talk about this. But it's about an inmate who was accused of being a drug lord. And while in prison, he gets his law degree and then starts practicing law um, like as a prison rep and whatever. And a large portion of the show is based on um, him researching precedent and looking at things that happened in this country before and kind of using that as a way to apply knowledge and how to, persec- to pursue a case. And I know that was kind of like a really stupid tangent, so I'm sorry. But like sometimes I feel like the committee dismisses the way it behaved in years past and then does the exact opposite of things that it's done in the past to make a new decision. And then the following year will make the decision that it made two years ago. And it's just like, what is the system here? And they always talk about the criteria that they follow. And they always talk about all the things that they have to see and the importance of each rung. But I don't think that they apply the criteria. I just think they sit in the room and they bullshit until they figure out what they, they agree. And I think maybe if you have knowledgeable football people, um, that that's the best way to do it. And maybe one year the precedent doesn't really take take place or make sense in the next year if the teams are different. Like I understand that you can't just like apply the same line of thinking all the time, especially with the committee changing people. But like it's so far off the reservation you don't really ever quite know how it's gonna turn out. So for me it's more of a reality show where you tune in every Thursday and you kind of see where things are at. Um but also that's the fun of it. So um it also can be agonizing uh for fans who expect their team to be in and then aren't which has happened to ohio ohio state has been a relevant team in the playoff discussion every selection sunday since the inception of the thing right like they've never been out of it going into it and like they've gotten in sometimes and they haven't gotten in sometimes um and the times that they haven't got in are the reason why people go nuts and like the the worst part about it is there's no transparency there's no discussion. There's no ability to, to talk about like future scenarios or any sort of thing that you could try to come up with to try to explain why they got to that point. And the lack of transparency and treating it like it's the Pentagon is the reason why it's so freaking annoying. Like release the rankings, have a discussion about it, and like be real about why. Like they just look the best. If that's the case, and say it, you know, or every, you know, I don't know. I just think that this is a really long rant, and I've written a ton about this. But the lack of transparency in the playoff committee is so stupid. And we got to stop treating college football and the discussions around crowning the champion like classified information. We're all on the same ride together, especially if there's a freaking TV show about it every Thursday. Yeah, and the basketball selection process is so much different from football that I don't, I don't know. Like <clears throat> comparing the two is not even worth it. Um, but comparing how it's presented, I think, is is interesting. But I would much rather have. I like getting the, the rankings from the playoff committee every week, even if the last ones are the only ones that matter, because it frames the context for the coming week. Like. 
and I guess the AP poll could do that, but the AP poll is not the thing that's ultimately going to ultimately going to decide who plays for a national championship. Don't so pay I'd rather have the, the AP poll. I it's think they bullshit. do. No, the AP poll mat the AP poll matters because it helps provide that context before the playoff rankings come out. No, no, People- I know, but I'm saying, I, as somebody who has voted in it, right? You can just say that, like, how much time you're covering a team are you spending, like, actually putting critical thinking into where you put teams? Most reporters who do it just go who won, who lost, and then move it accordingly. There's no thought process at all. Yeah, like it's I'd too- rather I'd rather yeah. go with the playoff committee's wrong explanation or wrong decision. Because they're actually putting the effort into like doing it, I think the AP poll is completely pointless. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Two more questions. Nathan T., do you think the linebacker room reshuffles like reports said during the spring with Pete Werner bulking up and moving to Will and Baron Browning playing some Sam and Rush end on passing downs? I think I've talked a lot about this. Like, What do you expect the running back like rotation to look like this year? Or not? Sorry, not running back, linebacker rotation to look like this year. Dude, this is like such a bill question. No, I know. I've talked a lot about it, and I kind of addressed it earlier too. I like like Pete Warner was a very underrated player last year, and like he was like surprisingly good in coverage. And like the idea of like moving to Will seems kind of interesting because like, did you think he had to bulk up? I thought that that was kind of a strange, you know, discussion topic. And like, uh, yeah. um, you know, Baron Browning, I think is most um, natural as a rusher. So like, what this all. Is kind of mapping out makes a ton of sense. Like I think that Baron Browning could have the best year of his career if like he becomes the guy who's pressuring the quarterback. And I think that a lot of times that requires the least amount of thinking and just like letting his like athleticism take over. So um, I think that you're kind of stuck with what you're going to do at Mike. And you know what they do with these two guys, I think is a really important thing to kind of consider here. I think Werner, the stuff at Werner moving to Will is more about. Browning and less about Werner because I think Werner can play anywhere. Um, I just think Baron Brown's re- Browning has really struggled playing Mike and Will linebacker, and and it's fine if it's just like doesn't suit his skill set. Then then they should find something that does, and I think playing rush end definitely does. The idea of him playing Sam linebacker, a position that comes with some tight end coverage responsibility, is interesting because we've not seen him do that all that much. The position he was playing, which was Mike and Will, and like what Malik Harrison did sometimes like the past coverage responsibilities in that position are basically just dropping into a zone. It's, there's not really any man coverage that comes with that. Um, and I think like Pete Werner can do that. He can be the man coverage guy or he can be the, the guy who, who spot drops as the will linebacker. Um, moving Pete Werner to will or giving him reps at will, I think means you don't ever take him off the field. So if they're in nickel, I think when they're in nickel, like the two linebackers might be Pete Werner and Baron Browning. And last year it was Malik Harrison and Browning most of the time. And Werner was the one who came off the field. So moving him there means gives you an, op- an, op- an option to not have to take him off the field. Um, but I just don't know, like the idea of like Baron Browning stepping into that role and being the guy who covers tight ends. It's not that I don't think he can do it. I just haven't really seen him do it. Um, he's certainly athletic enough, and he was a safety, I think, in, in high school. So I think he'd be in some familiar positions. Um, but I think it's worth a shot because I'm not sure that like the inside linebacker thing is going to work with him. So if you want to move him around, put him in space, let him get after the quarterback, I think that makes sense. And then the Mike's. I just want to watch him get after the quarterback. Vision. Yeah, yeah. And they did that with him last year. Like that was kind of he was like he was like a third down extra rusher a lot last year. And I think you'll see even more of that this year in a world where there's no Chase Young. Yep. All right, last question. Quentin M., who will be the best quarterback Ohio State faces this season? He gives Adrian Martinez from Nebraska, Michael Penix from Indiana, Sean Clifford from Penn State, or Joe Milton from Michigan. 
or whoever they play in a Big Ten title game. There's a lot of hype around Milton, isn't there? He's got a cannon for an arm. He's got a really good arm. I don't know uh, what kind of runner he is, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of hype around Joe Milton. He'd be the first uh, quarterback recruited out of high school to start a season for Jamar If you would have showed me this question, like, last year, I would have been like, what the hell are we doing here? Um, I'm very excited to see Mertz play, too, because I like high-rated prospects in Wisconsin's uh, – Oh, yeah. He put that – I copied and pasted that. Like, Jack Cohn's still there. Um, so, I would imagine he's the starter. I like Graham Mertz a lot. I watched him throw when he was in Let high school. Let him play. Let him play. Um, it's interesting. I think the answer to this question might end up being Sean Clifford, and it's because of the offense that they're going to have. Um, Kirk Soraka, I might be saying his name wrong, was the offensive coordinator of Minnesota last year when they had Tanner Morgan throwing to Rashad Bateman and uh, Tyler Johnson. That worked out really well, and they're just going to try to replicate that and that stay col- and stay college now with Sean Clifford and, and those guys there. So he might have a big year. Um, Penix is the guy that like they didn't see last year when they played Indiana. Peyton Ramsey started that game because Penix was hurt, and he's had injury problems throughout his career, but when he's healthy, he's really good. He was 5-1 and one as a starter last year. Pretty dynamic runner. Good passer. I, if he's healthy and can stay healthy all year, I, I love what Indiana's offense could be. And they'll play them in the middle of the year when, in theory, they'll have a, a little more uh, better idea of, of who they are offensively. And, and they're playing Clifford in week two. Maybe they won't know that. So I guess my answer to this question would be either Penix or Milton. And because I've seen more of Penix, I'll say Penix. I'm excited. I want to see Milton. I want to say Milton. I think Sean Clifford is what he is. Yeah, Martinez I don't know what happened to Martinez so last year against Ohio yeah. State. That. Yeah, I, I want to believe that like Joe Milton is going to be the quarterback that actually works out there. Yeah, me too. I mean, that'd be that'd be interesting for the for rivalry purposes and for like, changing the the dynamic in the Big Ten a little bit. Although Michigan's problems against Ohio State have been mostly its inability to stop Ohio State from scoring and not so much that its quarterback wasn't good, but yep. it would help to have a good quarterback. Yeah, I think that's always kind of important. Yeah, stop giving up 60 points to Ohio State, and then we'll talk about your quarterback. That's also important. (laughs) A lot of important things, Bill. All right, we'll wrap up there. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you for submitting uh, your questions. Theathletic.com slash 4-6 gets you $1 off or $1 per month on the annual subscription, and you can ask us questions and mailbag shows moving forward. Uh, Looking forward to watching some SEC football this week. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that if anything interesting happens. And we get to see, like, Alabama play on Saturday, and I know Alabama always matters for the context of Ohio State. Um, So we'll watch those games this weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you on Monday. See you guys then. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.